With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. I'm recording this on the day of release. We're going to be looking back at the Masters. I'm here with Phil Yates and Michael McMullen to talk about Mark Allen's great win and all the other issues that arose. Um, well, I don't want to like, blow my own trumpet, but I'll rephrase but it. I, I, do want to, I do want to blow my own trumpet. I did tip him, and I think, to be fair, like it, it was a long time coming, this, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, I was trying to think. You actually think back in the history of the game, it's hard to think of any players better than Mark Allen who haven't won one of the big three at some point I mean you look at the likes of Barry Hawkins Marco Fu might be the other really good players but you know it's a bit of a surprise really it's taken it this long as you say you think back he was a world semi-finalist as long ago as 2009 he's been in the top 16 unbroken for almost a decade now so it's a case of what took him so long played well though didn't he I mean obviously beat Purcell and then beat the two legends Ronnie and, and John Higgins and the final I think the key for me was he, he was not um, at all uh, at his best in the first session but he hung on in there could easily have been 6-2 down it's funny how often isn't it that you look back on the last frame of the afternoon mm. session as the key in these two session finals and I think it certainly was this time Phil if I got £100 for every time a final had finished 4-4 after the first session and then the loser had come in at night and said if I'd have won that last frame in the afternoon I'd have, I'd have won the tournament it, it, the same pattern's repeated so often <clears throat> what I will say about Mark Allen, I completely agree with you, uh, Michael. He's got flair, he's got massive talent, and he's got temperament. Now, those three are normally the absolute surefire qualities to win, not just one or two big events, but plenty of them. I think the only surprise to me is that it take, it's taken him uh, this length of time to, to get where he is, because he's certainly no respecter of reputations. The win against O'Sullivan wasn't his first on a big occasion against Ronnie. The win against Higgins, again, you know, he's beaten him before, he knows what to do. So the only surprise for me, as I say, is that it's taken him to 2018. Because when he turned professional, of course, in mm. 2005, he'd won the World Amateur Championship, he'd won the European Amateur Championship, he was touted as the, the next best thing. His first two matches as a professional were against Steve Davis and John Higgins, and he won them both on live television in front of big crowds at the waterfront. And He couldn't have won a big tournament with anything like the sort of game he had in those days, because you think back to 2008, he should have beaten Stephen Hendry in the first round of the World Championship, but you know, it, just the style of play he had, it was just too much, he pushed the boat out too far, and he knew it, and he was in tears after that match. 
because he knew his style of play had cost him. But he's changed it so much now. He's a very attacking player, but it, it's very measured at the same time. And his shot selection actually is, is really good. And I thought that was particularly impressive during the Masters. I think the hardest thing, if I was a professional snooker player, the hardest thing for me to assimilate and to get over on a daily basis would be this. You can play well and lose, and you can play badly and win. It all depends on how well the other guy plays. And this season, Dave will know this because he commentated on many, many matches involving Alan. This season, Alan's played so many matches, and indeed last season, where he's played really well. It's just the other guy's played it a little bit better. So inevitably I think this win was coming it was just a matter of win yeah and also he's matured a lot and he was on this, this very podcast last week and if people listen to that and many people have they'll have heard that he's a bit of a changed man and it was interesting in the arena after the final he made a point of thanking Barry Hearn you know bearing in mm. mind the things that have gone between those two he actually said no he's done a great job let's talk about a few of the sort of issues that came along during the tournament and actually Mark Allen's first match against Luca Brussel that started when they walked out and he came out with two cues Luca Brussel had two cues in the match never said anything like it it was extraordinary, of course. We're sitting here in the Rico Arena. Actually, it was in this very room where I interviewed him for ITV when he turned up for the Champion of Champions. And he told me the story of how he'd been forced to leave his queue uh, in China because of a connecting flight and they wouldn't let the, the queue on. And he was under the assumption that eventually the queue would be reunited with him. And, of course, it, it never has been. So that's, that was a real problem. And also, the timing of it. I mean, he just <laughs> won the China Championship into mm. a semi-final again, absolutely full of confidence. And then through these bizarre set of circumstances, he's divorced from a queue with which obviously he's very comfortable. And now he's not comfortable at all, and he's back to square one. It's a, it's a terrible situation. You can't see him persevering with having two queues. It's, it's not the right mindset at all to have that extra thing. There's enough going on in your head without having to think, which queue should <coughs> I be using for this shot? I think Robidoux did it once, about 20 years ago, and, well, of course, he ended up with his own problems <laughs> with queues, so it didn't work out very well for him. But certainly, I absolutely, I agree. I can't think of anyone else who's ever done it. What we also saw in this tournament was one of the biggest differences between a first-round performance and a quarter-final performance. Mark Williams, who played fantastically against Mark Selby, great opening day match, and then I guess Karen Wilson was just for whatever reason just completely all over the place. Well, age is the ultimate enemy of consistency. We've seen it with John Higgins, we've seen it with Ronnie O'Sullivan to a lesser extent. These players can still, over the age of 40, <coughs> produce great performances, but occasionally, just occasionally, they have a really off day. And that was a shocker from Mark, wasn't it? It really was. I'm a massive fan of Mark Williams, I was so pleased when he won that ranking event again before Christmas. But that performance was a shocker. And it's funny because he's been quite consistent this season. He's not been getting knocked out in early rounds of tournaments. He's been going very deep in events over the last few months. So it did come a little bit out of nowhere. Ronnie O'Sullivan played one of the most one-sided matches. Well, actually the most one-sided mm. match ever at the Masters in terms of points scored. I think Marco Fu scored 35 points. And a lot um, of those were fouls. Yeah, they were. Yeah. I think 17, 17 18 mm. points were fouls. Um, and, but then, of course, you know, it's the old adage that you know you, you can't do anything about the other guy. And Mark Allen played just a lot better in the next round. You hear people who cover the Masters and the World Championship who aren't on the circuit full time and maybe only cover a couple of tournaments a year. Who, when Ronnie won that match, said, "How can he possibly be beaten?" And I'm thinking, "Well, he can be beaten next match. He, he, he can be beaten by anybody in the field." You know, it all, all, it's not like tennis. You know, you, you're not. If you are right, right, really at the top of the game, you're vulnerable to defeat by anyone of the other top 16 players. So I wasn't surprised, shocked to stand in when he lost. Now, I do genuinely believe the, the, the dizziness is a, is a valid... Um, well, he said it wasn't an excuse, but mm. uh, it, it's, a, it's a valid reason why he didn't play his best. But as you say, Alan... 
full value. Well, like to me, to, to me, Mark Allen a he didn't fear playing him because he beat, he beat him in that before he beat him in the World Championship. But also, to me, he he didn't. He didn't look like he was playing Ronnie O'Sullivan. He was playing snooker. That's what he was doing. He was just playing the balls. He was playing the match. He wasn't bothered about who he was playing, which, against Ronnie, is not easy. And you can't have it as easy as that in every match. You, he was never going to have it as easy as that as he had had against Fu. And I think sometimes this happens to O'Sullivan. He starts off like a train in the tournament. Then he goes out in the next round. It doesn't come as easily to him. He gets a little bit frustrated. The game suddenly becomes a lot harder. And he's there for the taking. And I actually really fancied that was going to happen in the match against Allen. And to some extent, I think that was the story of that match. When he beat O'Sullivan in the World Championship, I, it was a Saturday morning session, the middle Saturday, I compensate on it for Eurosport, and I was absolutely astounded. Very rarely do players go into a session against a player of O'Sullivan's celebrity and status and be totally fearless. It was absolutely relish in the atmosphere. The crowd got behind him. And if you can beat him at the Crucible, you can beat him at Alexander Palace. Will he be at the Crucible, Ronnie? I, I say yes. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, there's no question. I mean, you know, he comes in and he says, oh, you know, I don't really like all the attention and the focus and everything. But if the terms and conditions are right, I'll play there. So I think that tells you what's really going on there. There's no question at all he'll be at the Crucible. I think the big reason he'll be at the Crucible, apart from the fact that, you know, the World Championship and he could add to his legacy, is the fact that if he could win 425,000 points, that would give him the latitude to have more time off, which obviously he wants, because that would make his ranking so... Uh, invulnerable at the top of the list there that you know he could he have a few tournaments off next season when he wants them I think that's a big incentive yeah, for him as well and also I, what I would say and kind of in defence of Ronnie here is that when you just lost a high profile match like that obviously you're very disappointed and the prospect of going to Sheffield for three weeks and sort of slogging it out maybe wasn't sort of the first thing he wanted to think about but obviously you get asked about that by, by the media I'm sure we'll see him there um, now the big kind of uh, where, where, he's, where is he now sort of a player in this tournament is Ding Jun Wee what's happening there again just uh, he started obviously well 3-0 up to Ryan Day and then all over he does this though doesn't he I mean he's not someone apart from that one incredible season that when he won the five ranking events but even then he lost in the first round of the world championship uh, very surprisingly he's not the sort of player who tends to just keep playing well you know consistently for 18 months two years at a time and he's been very patchy this season he's won a tournament already but you know, the last few months he just seems to have gone walkabout again. But it would just be so in keeping with his career to just go out and win his next tournament. Well, you did the first round report, didn't you, from the UK Championship? This yeah. Week, so oh, yeah, Leo Fernandez. Yeah. And you, you know, you quite rightly said that the defeat by Leo Fernandez has got to be ranked as one of the greatest shocks of all time. People don't uh, remember that. Well, he was five-one up, Ding, making a, a succession of breaks. And he was Two well, balls away from winning six-one. Yeah, well, in front in the next frame, he's lost six-five to a guy who hasn't won a match all season. And then you think, well, how can that possibly be? But then you see him play in subsequent tournaments, and indeed the ones immediately preceding the UK Championship. Well, he's in a massive slump, there's no doubt about it. Obviously, the other player we haven't mentioned who played a very important part in this tournament was Kyron Wilson, uh, the runner-up. Had a great run. He's only second time in the Masters. Um, I think that the big match, really, for him was the semi-final, wasn't it? And he showed tremendous bottle and, and fighting qualities to, to turn it around against Trump. He really went on the attack in that match, really tried to win it. You know, it's funny, you look at some players, their whole career has turned on a single week. Stuart Bingham, I think, winning the Australian Open is a prime example. Kyron Wilson in Shanghai really is that as well, because the amount of belief it's given him, and you can see his, his attitude and his demeanour the last few years, he really feels like he belongs, and even at 5-2 down against one of the best players in the world. I mean, he still really felt he was in there, he was as capable uh, as anyone of winning it. And, uh, I mean, that sort of determination, it was, it was funny, you know, I was thinking seeing him at the end when he was in tears, and, you know, I didn't have any problem with that. I think it's great to see someone caring so much. But, you know, 
you look at it, he's only 26. There's no way someone of his ability and his sort of bottle isn't going to be in that position and have that chance many more times. They do heart transplants now, they do kidney transplants. <laughs> if they can do head transplants and, trans- and transplant Karen Wilson's head onto some of the um, underachieving, very talented players lower down the rankings, you'd have a, a vast improvement in that particular player. He's a consummate professional, good guy, tries to get the absolute most out of himself. The two players he reminds me of, Peter Ebden, although he's easier on the eye to watch, and Mark Selby. Now, he's one of those players, I think, if he wins a tournament, by the way he plays, might he might take a little bit out of himself. So I couldn't ever imagine him winning a whole succession of tournaments in a season, but I could certainly see him having a very, very good career, and, and maybe, maybe, maybe even win the World Championship. I heard one of the pundits on BBC, I think it was Peter Ebden, um, last week saying, I'd be astounded if Karen Wilson didn't win the World Championship in the next two years. Now, I think that's a little bit over the top. Yeah. I wouldn't, you know, I, I don't think, you can't say anybody in the game is a lock to win the World Championship over the next two years, not even Mark Selby or Ronnie O'Sullivan. I think that was a bit over the top, but I think he's going to have a very, very good career, and I'm really pleased he's involved in professional snooker because he's made of the right stuff, that lad. Yeah. Do you think, though, he, I mean, if he looks back at the final, I think he will have regrets in that first session. You know, he's, he's whacked that pink way too hard in the fourth frame to win that frame. Should have won the eighth frame. So potential for 6-2 or certainly 5-3, and then maybe he pulls away at night. What's the sort of right thing to do for him? Is it to look back like that, or is it to just say, you know what, it's gone, let's move on to the next tournament? Well, it has to be the second one, doesn't it? I mean, you learn your lessons, but you've got to move on in professional sport, otherwise, you know, you've got no future at all. And, you know, you've seen players, particularly in golf, I think, more than anything else, and their careers were ruined by, you know, uh, losing on the big occasion. Thomas Bjorn, someone like that, you know, in the 2003 Open. Um, I don't think you'd make it to that level without being the sort of person who can put these things behind you. But it's funny you say he's play, you know he had a chance to be six two up. He could have been six two up without even having played all that well yeah. in the afternoon session. And what a bonus that would have been. Well, we're saying Alan's the flair player, you know, the one with the most talents, and and in my eyes, you know, he is a tremendous player. But at one point, I think I was talking to Dave actually in the press room down at uh, Alexander Palace. At one point, I think Wilson had five of the six highest breaks in the match or even six of the highest seven you know so he was performing pretty well I think that frame that Dave mentioned the one where he missed the thing was a, a big one and also the, the the last of the afternoon session what I liked about that though was his reaction afterwards when he cried it showed what it meant to him and there's no greater motivation in sport than the avoidance of how bad you feel when you lose and that's what kept Henry going he didn't want to he wasn't he, he, okay you love to win but he was playing primarily to avoid how badly he felt when he lost. We also saw Kyron, uh, they, they, the old boy with the phone uh, during the final. It looked like he, he didn't even know he had a phone, this old guy, and it yeah. kept going off. When he was down on the shot three times, and they, they, the, the referee said, throw him out, chuck him out and all this, and everyone was applauding, yeah, get rid of him. And then Kyron said, oh, no, actually, just put his phone on silent and let him come back in. And then, for some reason, everyone applauded that as well. They suddenly thought, oh, no, actually, yeah, he's a good guy. And it was a nice thing to do that, because, you know, that when you're sort of concentrating on what you're doing at the table and you know you could, you could imagine some other players wouldn't have been quite so lenient yeah, he's an old fashioned kind of guy Karen, yeah. he seems to me he seems like a real gentleman yeah. so you know I thought that's brilliant yeah. but I wasn't in the least bit surprised yeah. to see it either because that just seems to be the sort of guy he is yeah. he's just such a, a grounded lad and I cannot speak highly enough of him I've told this story many times before maybe even on this podcast but it reminded me actually in a strange way of that time down at the Masters 
at Wembley Conference Centre when Cliff Wilson spent the mid-session interval sitting with the Chelsea pensioners. Mm. You know, it was just the right thing to do. Well, it was his age group, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, fi- yeah. well, finally, I think what, what this year's Masters has underlined is what we kind of knew already, but having just been there all week and been part of it, this is now the number two tournament in the game. It's, it's, it absolutely is. It's a fantastic event. The crowds were really good every session. Just a great tournament. And what was noticeable was there wasn't one knocking piece anywhere because you can't write them now. You can't write the knocking pieces. The, 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 the evidence is there. Snooker's doing so well. We, saw, we said this on the preview podcast that we did. It has overtaken the UK. The UK's strengths were the best of 17, uh, the small field. Those things have changed now, and I think that's taken away from the UK. The Masters, on the other hand, just gets bigger and bigger. I didn't see an empty seat all week. No, and also, yeah. like, to me, like, there's nothing you would change about the tournament now. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect tournament. Top 16 in the world, two matches a day, one table, great venue. What more do you want? And we've got to say as well, see Mark Allen at the end in the Northern Ireland shirt. Mm-hmm. He had spoken before the Northern Ireland Open uh, about wanting to do something for the Northern Ireland sporting public after the national football team had scandalously really been denied a first World Cup yeah. appearance in 32 years. So he has given a bit of cheer now. Mm-hmm. The Masters is now a big enough event you know, to really have that sort of impact on the wider public, and uh, it's just great to see that. Mm. On paper, the least sexy first-round match was Colin Wilson against Barry Hawkins. Now, it's not whether O'Sullivan sells out or whoever, it's what you know, the least sexy match, the, the crowd figure for that. I'm wondering what's, what it's going to be. You turned up, it was a fantastic crowd, a fantastic for that match show. But this is actually the genius of putting the tickets on sale early because people will think, right, I want to go to the Masters. I don't know who's playing yet. They won't know till December, but I don't want to miss out on a ticket. And what they find is actually they don't mind so much who they watch. As long as it's good, it doesn't matter. And it will be good because the way the circuit and the ranking system is set up now, the Masters cannot fail to deliver because they're all going to be foreign players. They're nearly all probably going to have won a tournament and beaten each other over the last couple of years. And given that the standards are getting higher and higher now and the incentives getting greater and greater, how can it not be an outstanding weekend? I mean, when was the last time it wasn't a, a brilliant tournament? Alexandra Palace in December 2016 hosted Poole's Moscone Cup. Uh, it was a sellout for that, over 2,000 people every session. And it's going to host the Moscone Cup again in 2018, December again. They've added extra seats because they know the demand, I think. With the Masters, you might hear that story coming to life as well, where they might need to do add extra seats because of the demand. What a situation to be in, where you're actually making meaningful money off the gate. Yeah, and speaking of demand, very finely, Phil, on a different subject, China Open. What about that, the sudden hike in prize money there? <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. Dave, you and I were there at the mm. start of that Chinese revolution. Okay, Barry Hearn took the, the guys from Machu there in the, in the late 80s and all that kind of stuff, but really... The Chinese Revolution started with Ding Junwei winning the China Open in 2005, beating Stephen Hendry in the final. It was a great night then, but we never realised what was going to happen in terms of the the prize money. And the great thing is, over there, there's real rivalry between the cities, particularly Beijing and Shanghai. So now Beijing have come in and trumped Shanghai because, of course, they're going to have the biggest invitation events in the world Mm. next season. So what is going to be the the move from Shanghai? That wasn't that long ago, that first one in 2005. And I think in those first few years of the revived tournament in China, the total prize fund was less (laughs) than what the first prize is now going to be this season. And you're absolutely right, it is a competition between them now. They're driving up the prize funds for each other. That, in turn, is bound to lead to maybe a look at, well, are we going to have to put more money now into the big tournaments in the UK? What a time to be playing professional snooker, and more than ever to be winning tournaments because the prize funds are weighted now so much in favour of winning them, and that only encourages the players to work even harder at their game. How high can the standards get? Well, the, the sporting dynamic, we've had this with cities, Barcelona and Madrid, obviously, in Spain. 
You get it with golf on the Middle East circuit, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Qatar. Oman has come into the, the equation now as well. And it's really good because they all sort of um, interact and, and force up prize money and prestige uh, together, as it were. And that's what's happening in China. And it's not just Shanghai and Beijing, it's other locations as well. Can we pitch Sheffield and York against each other in the same <laughs> way, do you think? Could that work? No. <laughs> Going back to what Dave was saying about the Masters being the second biggest event, undoubtedly it's outstripped the UK Championship now. I love the UK Championship, don't get me wrong, it's a, a, a lovely event and, and let's not, you know, decry it. But sure. The Masters is far ahead now. Yeah, and we had a great week in London. Uh, I should have said at the start, this is a slightly shorter podcast than normal because, uh, well, we've got things to do. But anyway, <laughs> thanks uh, for your thoughts and thanks for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.